Welcome back, everyone, to Understanding Climate Finance. If you've listened to past podcasts on this channel or even followed me on social media, you've seen that I've talked about the missing middle. This refers to those businesses whose ticket sizes are too small for large institutions, but too big for venture capital funders. This is especially true in emerging markets, where you're trying to see some innovative climate solutions that have the potential to help a lot of people. Development finance institutions are looking to address that while staying true to their mandate, mission, and promise outcomes. You may recall my conversation with Anita Fiore, for example, who explained how IDB Lab makes off-balance sheet investments in Latin America and the Caribbean. The International Finance Corporation, which you will remember is the private sector investing arm of the World Bank, is no exception. But instead of just doing earlier stage investing, which they do through their venture group, they're looking at market conditions that hinder effective private sector investments in a given country. Over the past several years, the IFC has talked more about upstream investment and how that can make a difference in the markets that they serve. So to that end, it's my pleasure to welcome Don Burka to the podcast today. Don is a principal investment officer for energy at IFC and is currently based out of Washington, D.C., Don works in the infrastructure department, which provides project financing in emerging markets and is the global lead for upstream energy investment, providing early stage project development and seed capital for projects. He previously was with the World Bank's financial structuring and PPP team, where he structured credit enhancement instruments and guarantees to support private investments in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Don came to the World Bank with 15 years experience with the Asia Development Bank, where he was the director of an investment team arranging debt guarantees and equity for private sector infrastructure projects in South and Central Asia. Overall, he spent more than 25 years financing transactions across emerging markets in Asia. So thanks, Don, for being part of the podcast today. Hi, and thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you here as well. So I thought you could kick it off by just explaining to us what does upstream mean to IFC and why is it such a big priority in IFC, particularly in the last few years? So so what does upstream mean? I think it's really about trying to address what are persistent sector and market barriers in the emerging markets that really inhibits the creation of project pipelines. So, so what we have sort of identified over the, the years and decades we've been doing this is that the issue is never really about whether there's enough capital or whether the, the capital is willing to, to necessarily go into these countries. It's, it's about the fact that there's, there's just not enough bankable and investable projects in the world. And if you look at you know, the types of projects that IFC finances with the private sector, you know traditionally, we only see about 20% of those projects that we that we see at the at the beginning of, of the cycle actually make it to the finish line. So for us, you know, the idea with upstream is okay, is there a way that we can help, you know, address those sector market barriers and can we improve that success rate on private sector projects? But at the same time, and I think more importantly, it's about deepening those pipelines. How do we how do we actually bring in groups of projects rather than say an individual project to to help attract some of that capital that's seeking to be deployed in emerging markets? So upstream is is really about trying to deepen those pipelines and and trying to address barriers again persistent sector market barriers at the same time. So you mentioned some of the sector barriers that you wanted to address with the upstream work at IFC. What can you explain some of those common barriers that you saw that sort of make get only 20% of the projects really come to fruition? Well, I think part of it is there's natural attrition that happens with private sector projects to begin with. You know, it comes in with a proposition for an investment. 
and they realized that they needed more capital than they have, or they the risks were greater than what they expected, or there's just a change in the investment strategy. There's there's not a lot we can do when it when it comes to to those particular issues. But what we can address is is really you know where we see you know key development objectives that need to be addressed in in these countries. And maybe I'll use energy access as a good example. You know, we the energy access needs in Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa especially, are, 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 are quite significant. And, and so what we had seen from the market is that you have lots of entrepreneurs and small investors that are building out energy access projects where they, where they know that they could sell the electricity to people that basically have nothing. And all those projects has been, have been very, very small. And, and what that means is that by nature, if you're just trying to raise a small amount of capital, you're, you're going to have to do it with, with sort of your own funds or raising small equity rounds to be able to try to get your company to scale and grow. And so what, that, what, what we saw happening is that that process ends up consuming so much time by the entrepreneurs that are still trying to develop out their business plans and get their, their companies to scale. And so we we looked at this at this issue and we said, okay, how do we how do we actually facilitate these projects being done in a much much bigger way? How can we bring debt into these projects where the risks are actually quite significant? And so we we decided to set up a, a whole program that we call scaling mini grids, which is about working with governments on the front end of of these types of initiative, bundling all these projects together. And, and trying to get to that scale so that you don't have an entrepreneur trying to electrify 30 houses. You have an entrepreneur trying to build 30 different microgrids across a country like Nigeria or, or like Malawi. So, so how do you do that? First is you work with the government to basically bundle the projects and prepare the projects as much as you can. And then you can also you know, help with the documentation that the government needs to actually bid projects out in, in a, a, a structured manner. And even if you get to that point, the issue still comes back to how do, you, how do you raise the right type of capital to build, again, a project that might be looking to electrify 100,000 people as opposed to, say, 100 people. And, and so we spent, at IFC, we spent a bunch of time trying to put together what we thought was a kind of a bespoke financial package of, of debt, as well as different types of guarantees that would specifically mitigate the risks that we see in the energy access market. And so we're now in the process, we've, we've done, we spent almost two and a half years sort of doing that upfront work, trying to identify where the projects are, identifying governments that want to work with us through this very structured process, and now, and also preparing the documentation that's required to have the right risk allocation um, between the government, the developer, and the consumers to make those projects actually work. And so now we're about to, to launch you know, a tender in the Democratic Republic of Congo to do a significant number of these, of these grid projects. And, and the IFC has already basically prepared a, a financial package that would be available to any of the winners of these projects. So this is an example of what Upstream is trying to do. It's trying to take what is a, a fundamentally good idea for development and actually put package it together so we can get scale, so we can try to meet the energy access needs in these countries. So it really sounds like this is the upstream work is a partnership really between your World Bank colleagues and the IFC colleagues. Is that sort of a correct assessment? Because yeah, if you're working with governments, you're working with 
through yeah, the, World the, Bank, the, the example I just gave is a great is a great you know version of that because you know we can only do this in the in the countries where the World Bank is also working with the government to do long term planning of of how do you reach those energy access targets. So you know maybe I'll try to give another example in a place like like Mozambique where you know the 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 energy access is only about thirty percent. Even the government realizes if we're going to get to our our targets of eighty or ninety percent electrification by twenty thirty, then you know there's no way the public sector can do this with public funds. So how do you how do you effectively bring the private sector in? And that's where we will work with our World Bank colleagues to look at the entire country and effectively use, especially using GIS and satellite imagery, we're able to map what is the most effective way of delivering energy now based on the population densities and 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 and, and locations. And so we'll look at it, we'll work with the World Bank and say, let's have the private sector focus on these areas because maybe they have enough density that we can, and they have the capital needs become quite significant that we'll have the private sector focus on rather dense areas. And then we'll have the public funds focus on more remote areas where there isn't sort of going to be a, you know capital needs or density that, that the, the private sector would want to come into some of those areas. So we work with them up front to decide what's the most effective way of providing affordable electricity to the, to the various areas. And again, trying to get to that that scale, the, the scaling of the different types of activities. Okay. And, and so in, in this example, you sort of described small. What is, can you define what small is by, by your definition as far as ticket sizes or in, in some of these, these markets? It, let's say, stick with this mini grid example. You know, what are, when you're looking to put, you know, debt and some of the other uh, financing to get together, what does that capital structure look like? So it really depends. Small is sort of a definition of, first of all, there is no definition. There's no there's no rule that any of our, our staff have necessarily follow. And we see, you know, what might be considered small in a place like India is very different than what is considered small in a place like Haiti, right? So in, I'll give an example. In India, if we were to work on a project, I would say that you know it's unlikely that we would we would you know put staff resources into developing something if we didn't see effectively a hundred million dollar investment coming out of that project. But in a place like in a place like Haiti, we've actually been working on similar mini grid projects there, and it looks like the IFC investment is only going to be one or one and a half million dollars. And the management has said it's okay. We're, we're going to, even though that's, you know, relatively small for, from IFC as a whole, that's what we have to do in some of these markets. So it's really, it, I, I hate to give people rules of thumb when it comes to, you know, what's the right ticket size for IFC, because it's it really does vary depending on the market we're working in. So what are some of the, when you're looking to work with a project developer, let's say in maybe in, the, in this upstream sort of, with this upstream focus, what are some of the areas of failure or struggle in upstream projects that you find in your due diligence? Sure. So some of the areas that we struggle with is, is that where, you know, if we have a rel- relatively ambitious agenda, if we don't have the government buy-in, right? And it may be the case that the government buy-in also changes over time, right? And of course, that's going to happen with election cycles, ministers coming in and out. They all have different levels of enthusiasm for different projects. So it could be that we start an initiative with one particular minister or a state-owned enterprise, and then you know people change, and we and we just don't see that commitment from the government side. And and 
you know, let's let's be honest. This is a partnership. This is not something that IFC or even the World Bank can do on its own. We need to see that government commitment being there over you know the many years it takes to get some of these projects off the ground. So that's that's one area where we struggle. Another area that we struggle is you know we get involved with initiatives from the IFC side, which which of course focuses on the private sector. But there are some cases where the more we we look at a project or a sector, we come to the conclusion that maybe it's actually best that these things be done with public funds, that it's not efficient or it's not effective to bring the private sector in. No matter what people say, you know, we obviously try to maximize private sector investment, but there are some cases where it is still more effective for the public sector to do things. So so we have to, to be honest, we have to step back at times and just decide. Is it worth continuing with these big initiatives if if we if we don't see it as being financially viable at some point? In fact, you know one of one of the things we do within our within our upstream unit is we spend a lot of time really you know pushing ourselves and pushing the team to to clearly demonstrate that there is a there is a clear what we call a clear line of sight to the investment. And if the teams can't really demonstrate that, if it feels that it's a bit of kind of hopes and dreams. Then we say, listen, it's okay. Let's pull back, right? We we don't have to continue to put resources and money into something unless we're convinced ourselves that this is gonna unless we see that investment. And that's we have lots and lots of those conversations with with our teams because we need people to realize we cannot solve everything through this upstream initiative. We have to pick and choose the right spots for us to be involved. And that's that's okay. That's what our management has asked us to do is to really focus on things where we can be effective. Okay, I mean that that makes sense. And in fact, just going through your website on the frequently asked questions around work streams, it clearly says having a clear line of sight to a potential sector investment within five years, and I, I think that's fair. Like you mentioned, there's so many other factors that sort of come into play when you're sort of looking at some of these. Maybe I can mention one of the thing that we, you know, we try to work in partnership with the private sector as much as we do with governments when it comes to upstream. And you know we do get approached quite a bit with the private sector with sort of their own ideas of what they would like us to get involved in. One of the challenges we have is that I think a lot of small entrepreneurs or small companies will come to us and and say, well, we need your help to to do this in a given country, whatever it might be. And what we we always try to make sure they understand is that you know we are not this is the upstream is not intended to be a grant funding activity, right? It's meant to be a cost-sharing activity. We are willing to put some of our funds and resources into an initiative, but we expect the private sector to be there with us as well, right? So we have had cases where where companies are coming to us and they say, well, we need $2 million to carry out this study. And then once we get to that stage, this will be the next phase of, of the activities. And then when we look at uh, the partner, you know, the partner may be very experienced and capable and they understand what needs to be done. And if we don't see them putting some of their dollars on the table as well, these are not. This is not going to be a very successful partnership. We know that. We know that from experience, right? So, so we do make sure that we have partners coming in that are that are willing to have, as they say, you know, their own skin in the game in terms of these investments. It can't just be IFC putting its capital above and beyond what the private sector is, is willing to do. So, we have had cases where we see viable ideas. But you have somebody that basically has no capital of their own, right? Or they want us to help induce the strategic capital to come into a project. 
And that's where we have to say, listen, we'd like you to, we think it's an interesting idea, but maybe you can come back to us when you've brought that strategic capital in. And that's, that's really the right time for us to engage. But will IFC play a syndication role? I mean, we won't necessarily, we, we can play a syndication role when it comes to the debt, right? And we, ha- we have lots of different facilities, including donor funds, where we can basically help with, with that part of the capital structure to say, IFC will come in with a certain amount of debt of its own. We'll bring in three other lenders behind us that also want to participate in this particular sector or segment. And then we may even layer some donor funds as well to improve the affordability or the viability of, of that particular project. We don't typically do that on the equity side. Okay. We do expect the consortium to come to us, right? And there, there are cases in which we'll even suggest to investors to say, listen, we think you need a little bit more, with a little bit more strength on this particular issue technically, but also from, from you know, a financial balance sheet perspective, we, we think that a little bit more strength might be useful. We, we have a separate group that does equity mobilization, but it is a rather small part of, of our activities. And those things are done not unlike you would you would have from an investment bank looking to raise, raise equity into a venture. Okay, that makes sense. And I'm glad you mentioned that because often with our TCS clients, I, that's the number one thing that I that I say is that you have to have some sort of skin in the game and bring financing. And I don't, to be honest, you know, just sort of, even from past experience, any business you had, I once had a startup and I had to ask in the, in the game. So I'm glad you mentioned that and, and we can emphasize that. Just looking at the markets, you mentioned in your examples, Mozambique and DRC and others. Is the focus just on lower income countries with upstream or are you looking at lower upper middle class countries? Or what's the sort of profile of countries where you're looking to work? We we are we are operating in all of the same emerging markets that IFC operates, and so that does include middle income countries as well as low income countries. We do have broad targets across all of our all of the aspects of our operations in which we have to have a certain percentage that is focused on low income or fragile conflicted state locations. But when it comes to upstream, we 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 basically across the board in all these markets, and it really depends on. What's the type of intervention we are we are seeking to do in a given sector, right? So there may be cases in which you know we are you know when we're looking at improving broadband access in places like like Africa, there, there's certain there's certain projects that we may do that are focused very much on low income states, and there are other ones that maybe because they involve a higher level of risk or a different type of technology, we may be we may be deciding to first pilot some of those ideas in places like South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, with the intention of if this idea works, we would then be able to scale it and replicate it into the other markets within Africa. So that's that's some of the ways we 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 look at the different types of markets. One of the another good example of this is, you know, we have we have lots of donors that are are asking us to help facilitate the energy transition in emerging markets. And they, you know, donors typically will come with a set of countries that are eligible or ineligible. And they say, well, we really would like you to use these funds to help promote energy storage as an example, right? So how can we get more battery systems to be, to be coupled with renewables, which allows for the renewables penetration to deepen in, this, in these given markets, and they know that that's that's a good use of their funds to accomplish not only stability in the grid, but also again the penetration of renewables. And then they give us a list of countries where they want us to do this. 
And sometimes we struggle with that because we, we have to, we try to explain to them, you know, that we think that when it comes to the introduction of new technologies, it's really hard to sort of jump into the most challenging market market, emerging markets for, for these, for this type of deployment. You know, we see, we, like I mentioned earlier, we, we want to work in partnership with the private sector and we want to leverage off of their interest already in some of these places, right? So, you know, something like battery storage, we think that there's much better opportunities to deploy in places like India based on the maturity of the energy sector, the maturity of the investors willing to take some risks on the technologies with us. Because we think that the demonstration effect from a place like India would effectively be across the entire subregion if something works, right? So once you can actually sh- demonstrate success, you have assets on the ground, lenders and investors can see what the performance is of that assets, then things change in other markets. So, you know, we're, we often, India is a good example, other markets, I'm trying to think of, you know, like we're, we're doing quite a bit right now in Chile with green hydrogen. Right, which is another supposedly you know solution to a lot of our climate woes is investing in green hydrogen, and 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 I say that kind of flippantly because it's 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 something that people are being using using a bit too frequently nowadays. But a lot of donors will tell us is like, well, we we can't use our money in Chile. That's not a, it's not a it's not a, a a recipient of what they call ODA. And our point is, you're you're missing you're missing the the bigger picture. The bigger picture is is that if you would like green hydrogen to be demonstrated as a solution for decarbonization, you have to start in the right markets. And here's the reasons why Chile is one of the best places to consider piloting these these types of technologies with the idea that if this works in Chile, then we can take it to Brazil and we can take it to Colombia, then we can take it to all these other markets where green hydrogen is is being promoted. It's very hard to jump straight into a, a very difficult market and try to get investors to take not just emerging market macroeconomic risks, not just the risks of dealing with an immature energy sector with a regulator that's only been in place for a couple of years. And then you're throwing something like green hydrogen on top of that, that pile of risks or things that have to be dealt with. Sometimes it's a, it's a bit too tall of a mountain to climb. So we often will tell our partners, you know, let's let's think more openly about where the technology can be piloted and understand how 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 replication really works with with private investors. They they need to see assets on the ground built and they need to see operational performance. They need to know that it works before they're willing to take some of the most difficult risks in emerging markets. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense and I'm just going to do a a selfish plug here for anyone who's just more interested in in hydrogen i would encourage you to listen to our episode with michelle halak who's the hydrogen expert at idb where she talks about the difference between gray and green gray hydrogen green hydrogen blue hydrogen just as a background so thank you for that example and, and it completely makes sense um i imagine that Doing this upstream work during COVID must have been difficult. Can you tell me if if COVID opened up opportunities for more upstream work, or can you just how did how did you operate during that time? Well, there was there were some logistical challenges first. Is that the upstream started about three and a half years ago at IFC, 
And we were still in the process of, of ramping up our staffing and our organizational structure when COVID hit. So, you know, we, we ended up hiring almost 230 people from outside the institution to join this upstream unit, which was intentional. The idea was it was supposed to be upstream was about a cultural shift within I. And we hired all these people. And then suddenly people were being asked to work remotely. They were new to the institution. They were new to upstream. It was really challenging to get our, our teams to come together and understand even what we were doing, much less start talking with clients and, and looking at projects. So so our first challenge was was how do we deal with the this the staffing logistics of what effectively was a startup within IFC of trying to get the business to to come together. But we did, you know, there's a lot of things that we had as strategic priorities even before COVID. And I think a lot of those didn't change, right? I mean, like we knew that the energy transition was something that we were going to focus on. And a lot of those technologies and a lot of our, our business plans really stayed on track. I think th- what happened though is, is that it did open up new opportunities for private sector to come in, right? So some things that would have traditionally been done by, by state-owned enterprises because of the, the, the financial impacts of COVID really, really did impact how much more they could consider on, on their own, be doing things on their own balance sheet. And there was more opportunities for a private sector to come in and suggest different ways of doing things. So that that was like, I think, a positive aspect of COVID. I think there was also the there were there were new new types of business plans that were suddenly getting more attention. You know, how do you can you can you use technology to do things? You know, for example, remote monitoring of of of, of electrical grids and systems. That would ensure that would didn't require your staff to to go walk around and actually check things out physically, right? So, so how how could we use the technology to actually improve the the health and safety of your your utility workers who who you know because of lockdowns because of anything else that was was happening really prevented that sort of physical checking. So there are new opportunities that that opened up from from COVID even while we were all struggling to figure out how to how to work in this environment. Okay. I mean, that, that sounds like just like the perfect storm, hiring over 200 people, right? When he had to sort of not be able to get them in to, to, to train them on how IFC works. I think there was, I, I went two years before I actually met some of my own team, right? And, and it, was only, it was only even six months ago that we finally had a big department gathering in DC, as we often do with, with, our, with our infrastructure team. And even then, I met some people for the very first time. So it's it was kind of it was it was it was interesting. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. One one more upstream question before I ask you a non-upstream question with just your energy hat on is: What are the other sectors? When we talked about energy, what are the other sectors where we where we see upstream work at IFC? So upstream is actually across all of IFC Street, IFC's businesses. The there's, you know, we have a, an entire I'm talking mostly from the perspective of my department, which is the infrastructure space, but we do have upstream initiatives across our manufacturing, agribusiness and services unit, which includes education and health and tourism 
as well as uh, you know large large and heavy industries. We also have an upstream function with our financial institutions. So it is a very big initiative for IFC. I, I have been speaking only about sort of the infrastructures. In terms of other things within infrastructure, we also have you know programs that are focused. I mentioned you know broadband connectivity. That's that's a br- really big push, especially as we're focused on on Africa. Is that how can we improve? internet access as well as reliability and and getting better data speeds into Africa that's another, another big part of our of our upstream some of that also has to do really with you know working with with governments on the right sort of policies that they need to encourage private investments especially when it comes to to broadband and other things like data centers submarine cables con- connectivity amongst regions all those things require additional work on the policy side with governments. And that's been a big from my telecom and media colleagues in some parts of, especially I guess in Africa is, is, is a, what I was was thinking most most about. And I think we're, we're actually getting quite a bit of success with those engagements with governments to get new policies written and issued that really will facilitate that private investment. That That's, a, that's another example of something else we're doing in, in the infrastructure space. In the water sector, we, we have, have a, an upstream program that's really trying to address the issue of non-revenue water with with utilities and and how can we how can we basically bring the private sector in to help address the the NRW problem and we have a combination a program called utilities for climate where the idea is is can we provide advisory services to utilities to really identify some of those critical bottlenecks in their systems and how the private sector might be able to come in with their solutions to address that. And that's that's something again I mentioned earlier about trying to get to scale. You know, how can we how can we use upstream resources to to address these problems across multiple countries and regions? And and we that allows us to to sort of deploy our own resources more effectively where we see know, we, we've had traction in different countries to get the private sector to come in with those water utilities. So that's another successful program that we have through the upstream. Okay, no, that that that's really helpful to understand. That really it goes across all of IFC. Just sort of looking at from an infrastructure and maybe an energy perspective, what are the subsectors and geographies where where you see the most promise? We talked a little bit about green hydrogen. Where do you see growth in regions and in some of these subsectors? I think when it comes to geographies, we we see priorities across all of them, right? They're just they just happen to be different, right? So. In a place like Africa, we're we're very much focused on addressing the energy access gap as a primary part of our strategy. But in a place like Latin America, we're focused more about how can you how can utilities become more efficient and and how can those grids be providing more reliability and a cheaper cost to really help those those countries grow. So I think geographically we have opportunities everywhere. It's more a matter of how are you setting up the strategy and as so I think it, it it really comes back to picking your spots, right? What's the best use of your interventions with upstream, depending on what region it is? I think you know we're especially with the pressure and and the and the attention from from the COP meetings. You know we're we're very much focused on on climate change, and a lot of this is about how can we promote new efforts for for decarbonization across all industries. So. Now, I already mentioned green hydrogen because it's it's a very hot topic inside IFC as well as other DFIs. Is what's the what's the best way we can use, you know, we can promote green hydrogen to help decarbonize heavy industry. But even beyond that, we are looking at supporting, you know, the phasing down of cold fire power in certain markets 
that happens to be a very a strong focus right now in Southeast Asia, in places like Indonesia, the Philippines, also also in India. How how can we help develop the the plans for those those power plants to be eventually phased down or phased out, especially in countries where you still don't have sufficient energy to meet demand? So what can we be doing to to develop solutions with the private sector to say put together solar power plus battery systems, which could be much more firm power, right? And that's what you're trying to replace when you're when you're taking a coal a coal plant offline is how do you get that firm power to be available across more than just the daylight sunny hours that you have in the country. Right. So that's that's an example of where we're spending our, our upstream resources to focus on those solutions. We're spending a lot of time on offshore wind. We despite the costs looking to be rather expensive right now, we are taking a cue from what we've seen in the European markets where we've seen the costs declining quite rapidly once you get to a certain level of deployment and scale. And we think offshore wind is going to be you know, a critical solution to, to helping countries, again, take coal-fired power off, off and offshore wind is a slightly more, more reliable or more efficient way of generating energy than, say, a normal solar, solar PV plant. So can offshore wind help places like the Philippines is, is one of the places we're working on it. India is another. Also, we're looking at it in places like Colombia. And so so that's that's another area where we're focused on with respect to to trying to address different forms of, of decarbonizing the these these countries. Another another really big push is around distributed generation, especially for commercial and industrial consumers. So, you know, where you see you know strong engines of growth in places like South Africa. The, the commercial and industrial space is struggling to get reliable power from, from the national grid. And, and the situation has become, in fact, COVID really exacerbated that situation in South Africa. But what we're now seeing is the government has recently liberalized regulations that allows for the private sector to come in and build all of these smaller scale solar PV plants across South Africa. And the buyers are actually the businesses themselves. So not necessarily having to sell it to the grid, but being able to sell directly to another private private industry, and this is a, we think this is a huge growth area because we think that it's 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 the only way that a lot of these industries are going to get reliable power, and they're willing to pay for the costs for this power to be generated as it is now. So what are the business models that the private sector is looking at to 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 address this particular market? And then how can IFC come into that and, and try to help them maybe de-risk financial structures that allow for more investment and for more lenders to come in to support distributed generation? You know, the, the other benefit of, of these distributed generation plants is really getting more resiliency in your, in your grid to begin with, right? Where you're not going to be as reliant as concentrated central power plants that if you have a storm, if you have a grid outage, you're not taking you're not taking thousands of megawatts offline. You, you know the, the whole idea is by distributing your resources close closer to where the the actual demand and the load is from the clients. That actually builds more more resiliency into your grid, so that if you do have a failure of one station, it doesn't affect thousands of people. So this is something that will continue. We're seeing it all over the world. Uh, distributed generation, not just in South Africa, but we're seeing it everywhere. And it's really a matter of you know, how can we support these systems being developed in a way that is affordable as well as providing reliable and, and, and how, again, the issue for us always is scale. How do you get to scale in this market 
when you're only going to be building a 10 megawatt plant in one place? How do you do how do you do a thousand of these 10 megawatt type of projects in markets that need it? That, that's really the challenge that we're looking at. And my final question for you is, if a Canadian project developer is interested in sort of learning more or, or talking to you, what would you like for those project developers to prepare before talking to you about potential investment or, or just sort of some potential upstream work? Sure. Well, we do get we do get approached by you know developers all over the world with different different proposals and propositions. And I think, you know, the first thing to mention is that it's almost impossible for us to respond to everything. We have lots and lots of, of cold proposals coming in. So, you know, we have to unfortunately screen and and respond to the ones that we think have the most promise. So I always encourage developers to give us as much detailed information as you can, as soon as you can, about about the project that you're developing and and whether whether you know we're going to look at it from a commercial a commercial proposition first we we do want to see in that you've thought through how can this be developed as as a successful investment so that the the lenders can get paid back and the investors can earn a, a appropriate return we will always be looking at ways in which we can help you get there but we want to see developers have already put their own thought into those into those types of issues i always kind of joke with developers and like you could have saved the 25 pages of marketing material about your company or about, you know, the technology because we skip right over that. We're going straight to the project. We want to read about the project and about the investment itself. We do we do just encourage, you know, detailed information being sent to us as soon as as soon as you as soon as you have it. I think there's also this issue I mentioned earlier about the difference between somebody being a developer and somebody being an investor. And we get lots of developers that, that come to us with the ideas, but they don't have the investor who's there with them at the same time. We really do prefer that you come to us when you have a better idea as to, you know, what's going to be, there's lots of risks that have to be, have to be absorbed in the course of building these projects. And a lot of those risks have to be absorbed by equity. So where's the equity in your project, right? Even if it's a great idea, if we don't see that the equity is is lined up or identified it's hard for us to take that idea to our own management and get them to agree to spend time and and resources from our upstream unit to to sort of help you you know mature that project to the point where it could be it could be ready to to be built no thank you thank you for that i think that's a message that I also relate to our clients. And I'll actually use this opportunity to say, you know, with our Canadian clients who are the trade commissioner service clients, feel free to reach out to me and the other trade commissioners to look at your project first, because, you know, one of the, the value propositions that I like to say that we have is that we can be that first filter so that you can put your best foot forward. And then I can, then I'm comfortable connecting you to people like Don and some of his colleagues. So thank you, Don. This has been really helpful. And I really appreciate your time and, and your insights. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode. For the clients, like I said, feel free to reach out to me or your local trade commissioner if you'd like to learn more about IFC and their upstream activity. And we're happy to help out. And also feel free to share this episode and in fact, any episode really with your contacts and make sure that you rate us on your podcast platform. That helps me tremendously, not only to get visibility for the podcast, but also to know that the content that we're delivering is, is useful. So thanks again, Don. I really appreciate your time.
Great. Thanks for having me. And it was, it was a lot of fun to, to try to talk through all these different ideas that we have that we're working on. So thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And just as a closing note, Understanding Climate Finance podcast is a production of the Embassy of Canada in Washington, D.C. So thank you. And until next time.